1: Hello everybody, it's Wednesday, July 10th, 2013, and you are listening to the Talking Comics Podcast. I am your host, Bobby Shortle, and I am currently broadcasting to you from Israel. Um, So, as we said the last couple of weeks, uh, I'm going to be away for two weeks, Uh, uh, so the regular show can't quite proceed as usual, but uh, this week we have for you a pseudo-regular show, kind of a potpourri-type show. We're going to talk to Bob about the history of the Fantastic Four. Uh, then we're going to do a kind of book of the week segment where we talk about stuff that we never talked about before or some weird, weird stuff. Steve especially has a little bit of a treat for you as far as weird stuff goes. Um, and then we'll do some listener questions and then get out of here. Uh, probably going to be a little bit of a shorter show than usual, but uh, we wanted to get something out there for you guys. As far as discussions about the books that come out in the next two weeks, that's going to be a little tough for us. Obviously, um, you have to look to our Twitter at Talking Comics, or our Facebook Facebook dot com slash Talking Comics, TalkingComics dot um, com. The website will continue to be updated by all the fine, fine contributors that we have. So please keep going there, checking that's about commenting there. Uh, I'm going to try when I have time to do some maybe live streams, talk about the books a- as I read them. Uh, as of right now, the only book I think I've read for this week it was the What If AVX number one by Jimmy Palmiotti and. uh That book, I I can't see what place it has in in even the what-if span of books because it the problem is, even if you're a giant fan of AVX, which is fine if you are, but if you are, it really hits almost all of the same beats as that story does and changes one thing near the end. And maybe issues two to four will be completely different, but this first issue is just kind of a retread of stuff that's happened. Um I read a little bit of Superior Foes of Spider-Man. I haven't finished it yet, so I don't want to give my thoughts. But my initial uh, impressions is that it's full of style, really funny, uh, really good job by uh, Nick Spencer and Steve Lieber. Uh, but I'm going to try to do some more of that stuff, live stream stuff, maybe just record some notes. I'm going to try to do some video content while I'm, while I'm out here uh, and bring it to you guys. So that's it for the stuff that's coming out this week and what's going on. Next week We have a, we have a radio play for you, which I think you – guys will get a kick out of if not enjoy we had a great time doing it but without further ado let's talk to mr bob ryer about the history of the fantastic four all right so we're back for another segment of this uh special talking comics podcast uh so um because I'm away in Israel, and this is speaking from the past into the future right now, uh, we couldn't get together for a show, and we didn't want anything too time sensitive. So you've heard some of the other segments, but this segment, uh we've had people uh a bunch of people write in and ask Bob to do kind of history segments and it, there's it's tough to put that a place in a show because we have a lot our shows are usually really long anyway, so adding another forty five minutes half an hour, are you to, saying
2: I talk too much? No,
1: I'm saying we all talk too <laughs> much uh. Uh, you know, so doing that, we'd be we'd be probably pushing on four hours if we did that on a show, which I'm sure some people wouldn't mind. But <laughs> we do pay for the space of the show it gets hosted on, so I can't really uh, do it too much. Uh, so that being said, we, it was a good opportunity now to to go into one of those, and so we decided to do a uh, history of the Fantastic Four to start out, because obviously that is Bob's probably biggest area of expertise when it comes to comic books. Uh, so. Bob, let's start out. Just give us the the, the base, the beginnings. The How did it happen? Well, first we actually need the
2: landscape. Yes. uh, Because what you had then uh, timely, which was what Marvel was before, run by a guy named Martin Goodman, who was Stan Lee's uncle. And they published Human Torch, Submariner, in Marvel Comics number one, uh, 1939. What they basically did, they followed trends. Whatever somebody else did... Martin Goodman did. If the other companies had westerns, he had westerns. They had romances, he had romances. They had superheroes, he had superheroes. Uh, the only change they did in that in the early 50s, even before Flash came back for DC, mm. Stan tried to bring back the Marvel heroes. In the midst of all the Dr. Wortham stuff, he tried to bring back Cap, the Submariner, and the Torch and failed miserably. It <laughs> just wasn't ready for that. They went back to doing westerns and romances and then they rehired Jack Kirby and they did monster books. Giant monster books that look like those '50s movies with big bugs and giant rock men. Matter of fact, Angela is carrying one of those monster heads as she <laughs> flies into the shot. Right in, uh, at the end of Age of Ultron, the story goes. I think it's fairly apocryphal, though. Uh, DC had brought back the Flash and then had put all their heroes together into the Justice League. And the story was that Martin Goodman was playing golf with a guy named Jack Leibowitz of DC. And they started chatting about, hey, we've got superheroes over here at DC, and they're selling really well. Martin went running back to the office, how, where this happened or not. But Martin did ask Stan, hey, superheroes are big again. Let's do some superheroes. Stan, who was about to quit after 20 years of the company and tired of running dopey giant monster books, I, he didn't want to do anything. And his wife convinced him that, well, write the kind of book you want to write, because what's the worst that can happen? You get fired. Instead of writing some childish monster book, write something for grown-ups that you've been wanting to do and put it out there and what can go wrong. Now, they did hedge their bets because DC was distributing Marvel at that point, and they didn't know if they were going to be allowed to do superheroes. So the cover of FF1 is a giant monster and Mm -hmm. the thing. Mm -hmm. But Stan decided, okay, I'll have heroes with flaws. They won't get along. They'll quibble. I'll make a monster into a hero for the tragedy, the pathos of that. I'll have some humor. I'll have a family relationship. And it was a book that had never been done by anyone before. No comic heroes had ever argued that way. No one had ever had those relationships. And it was an instant hit. Just out of nowhere, this little company that had nothing all of a sudden had this breakaway hit book. No secret identities, no costumes. Um, They got away from that a little bit. That would happen fairly quickly because people demand certain things. Uh, but Stan, I've seen the, it's been reprinted, his actual type synopsis, and it's not much different what he wrote out, what actually hit the page. By the third issue, they were calling themselves the greatest comic magazine, then it was the world's greatest comic (laughs) magazine, an issue later, for issue four, and that brought back the Submariner. then it was, you have Dr. Doom, and everything just... So by issue
1: four, is issue four the first issue with Dr. Doom? Five. Five Five. is the first
2: Dr. Doom, um... He's looking for uh, Blackbeard's treasure, and he has, he has his time platform already by issue mm-hmm. five. Issue six, it's Doom and the Submariner teaming up. The Submariner, uh, he had been lost. You know, Stan wanted to bring him back. That story is that Johnny quits at the end of issue three. He and the Thing are fighting, and they beat the Miracle Man, and he disappears. He's living in a Bowery flophouse, and he's reading old Submariner comics. <laughs> And one of the old bumps says, "Hey, we got some old creep over there. He's as strong as that guy was supposed to be." Mm-hmm. And he walks over to him, and the giant lo- sort of looks at him funny. He's got the arched eyebrows and a weird shaped head. He gives him a shave with his finger. <laughs> "Hey, look, it's the Submariner." Dumps him in the in the in the Hudson River. He gets his memory back, swims to Atlantis. It's been destroyed by atomic testing. He's not happy. Right. He invades New York, giant monsters and the whole thing, but falls in love with Sue no less.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh so at that time when uh so Submariner, I mean I know that he has been a villain and a hero, kind of alternating for a long time. When he's a villain, it seems to be very much this kind of I'm just doing what's right for my homeland. It's mm-hmm. just different from what's right from you guys. Has that kind of always been the impetus for his evil actions or, or, or his evil actions to us, or was there times where he's just been a straight villain?
2: Uh, here and there, I, I guess, but for the most part, he was always that anti-hero. It was about Atlantis. Mm-hmm. Uh, within two years or so, the fight- FF were fighting on his side to help him stop someone even worse. Even after he invaded New York, it was like, well, this other guy, Atuma, <laughs> could be much worse. Uh, but even Dr. Doom, he's a really bad guy, but there's a nobility to him, a, a, a regalness to what he's trying. For his people, they like him. Mm-hmm. They're not allowed to say anything else, mind right. you, but they, they do kind of like him. Uh, but it was really within only a year or so that the book not only did take off, it then generated everything else. Hulk and Ant-Man and Thor It was this little company that could, telling stories that were so much different than DC. DC had the big heroes. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Justice League, Aquaman, Green Lantern, all still going great guns. They were all fairly bland. You could read a Justice Lee book. I've said this before. If you covered up the pictures, you wouldn't know who was speaking. They are mm-hmm. all basically the same character. Right. It was about the science of the stories. It was about the, the cool things you could look at. There was no characterization to speak of. Marvel was all characterization. Mm-hmm. And that caught the fancy of people, particularly the younger people, the college kids in the 60s, Stan, who had been writing books for eight-year-olds. Now found he could write upwards and write to teenagers and college kids in different language, involved plots, continued stories. DC didn't do continued stories except for twice a year, well, once a year in Justice League, Mm. where they crossed over. For instance, from issue 35 to 60 is basically one long story.
1: In Fantastic Four.
2: It goes all over the place, but the threads keep going. You're introduced to Medusa, and she has no memory, and she's part of the Frightful Four, the evil Fantastic Four. It's the Mm. wizard the trapster and sandman barred from over in spider-man and six issues later she's back again she escapes she then kidnaps the torch they go flying off to the the hidden land and you see all these inhumans where you then introduce fairly quickly to galactus and the silver surfer the black panther uh him who would be war adam you know adam warlock mm-hmm. eventually uh the crees we have the scrolls in the first 10 issues and they pop up over and over again and it was just it would bubble up. You know half. The stories would start in one place. They'd finish a storyline. The second half of a book would be the rest of that, plus four pages of what's coming next. Mm-hmm. So you never felt like you were forced. You wanted to buy the next. Mm-hmm. I got to see what happens.
1: Right at this time, it, it, in this initial runs of the characters, uh, you know, uh, are they pretty much the characters that we see today? Uh, I guess most notably it would be the Invisible Woman would be the would be the or the visible Girl I guess at, the, yeah, at that the point. She's the girl until John Byrne, Yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: yes, in a way, she started life much differently. She, Stan wanted her to be not a damsel in distress, a superpowered member of the team that someone you had to go rescue the way it would be Lois Lane in all mm-hmm. those books back then. whose basic function was to see who Superman was. That's what she did month right. after month after month. The problem was, as Trina Robbins has pointed out, if you give her a power that means she just vanishes when something bad happens, and they'd have her faint if she used her powers too much, (laughs) the strain was too much, and she'd collapse, Mm -hmm. it's almost a caricature of Victorian sensibilities. Of course it's too high, and she has the vapors. Mm -hmm. Um, As the books went on, though, he gave her the force field power. Uh, Then they became a couple when they became engaged in issue 35, which Dragon Man shows up for the first time, Mm -hmm. who's still around in the books. Mm And things began to change. You now had a, an engaged couple, you had a wedding in issue three, and they became equal partners. And that continued to grow as the years went on. They had kids, you know, they had, well one at that point.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Since Franklin's born in 1968, let's not try to think how old he actually is, even in Marvel time.
1: <laughs> Do you have any, uh, I mean, what about the, uh, what about the other three?
2: Johnny was a brash, hot-headed teenager, mm-hmm. and that stayed for a very long time, really until the Inhuman stories began, where he actually really fell in love, except with Dory Evans, who lived next door back when he was a teenager. Uh, but Crystal of the Inhumans got into his head, and that was part of the driving storyline. She was trapped behind a negative barrier, and so he had to find ways through. And that all came into um, it finally came to one of the Doctor Doom storylines in issue sixty. I guess they finally break that barrier. Mm. Reed was always the scientist guy, right? Uh, always in charge, how to do something. Ben changed slightly in that he grew more. I don't want to say happy about what happened to him, but mm. less angry. He was really angry for years, mm-hmm. and it, he began to accept that. Particularly once uh, Alicia Masters, the stepdaughter of the Puppet Master, turned up, who loved him for who he was.
1: Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I mean, I, I've really only read the first issue. I haven't read more than that, but you know, he does seem very angry about. He's shopping in a jewelry store, wearing yeah. a trench coat, and he's not very happy that the doors aren't big enough for him yeah. to walk through. Bah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, he has trouble buying bowling balls and hats and a, and a little bit of everything. And what, what it was, the other characters could. Change back. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stan had it that way initially and fix that. He also was gonna have the invisible girl be always invisible.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That she'd have to wear makeup and gloves right. and whatever. And realize that was gonna be pretty limiting.
1: Yeah. So she'd be more must like the the H. G. Wells yeah. invisible man. Couldn't, right, couldn't
2: find a way back. Yeah. Um, initially also Ben was in love with Sue. There was a little bit mm-hmm. of a triangle there, okay. but that, that vanished within an issue or two. He realized it was just unnecessary. He had something else going that just it didn't need that right. layer to it. Uh, as the book went on, the storylines just got deeper and broader and l- larger. And and the art, Kirby was always good, but with issue 44, he found an anchor named Joe Sinnott, who had worked on issue five, as a matter of fact, but sort of nothing in between. Stan, Jack, and Joe Sinnott were together from issue 44 to 103.
3: Wow.
1: So how many issues did Stan and Jack do together? 103,
2: plus 103. one extra that got inventoried and put in. Okay. Uh, this is the last one. I have 102 right in front of me. Oh, wow. And that actually has the little notice in the back that you know, Jack was leaving. hmm And that was heartbreaking. When you've read all these great issues and you, you're now seeing why is there a John Romita cover on this book? It's still Kirby <laughs> insides. And Romita was very good. Kirby's imagination was just incredible. And in partnership with Jack, uh, Jack and Stan, rather, you had a, a real team. The Marvel Method, I, I yacked about that here and there without probably ever stopping to explain it. Stan was writing eight books at once, mm-hmm. literally. And eventually, it's one of the reasons he dropped the X-Men. They did the, he and Kirby did the first few and then had to stop because something had to go. So he couldn't write full scripts, not that many in a month. So what they came up with was the Marvel method. He'd sit in the office with, whether it was Jack or Steve Ditko, and they'd, he'd jump around apparently on the furniture, jump off <laughs> desks, act out the scenes, do the dialogue, do voices, and they'd bounce ideas off each other. And he'd send Jack or Steve home with a synopsis. Mm-hmm. "Draw me something, right? You're part of this. Give me something back." The artists would come back with their own ideas filtered into it, their own camera angles and everything else, sometimes very different from what they had left the office with. Mm-hmm. For instance, in FF 48, when Jack Kirby brought the artwork back, Stan called him, he lived out. Kirby was out here on the island in East Williston, I think. Oh, um, who's this guy flying around on a surfboard? I don't remember talking (laughs) about him. Well, Galactus is a god. He wouldn't just show up. He'd have a herald. Someone would come before him. Mm -hmm. That's brilliant. Now, Kirby wanted just to use him and get rid of him, and Stan saw something different. He went, oh, we can use him. We're going to keep him around for a while. (laughs) But so many things happened that way, just the sort of happy accidents or deepening plots because someone else has a different idea. pure collaboration between all those Mm -hmm. people. Uh, John Romita everyone knows from spider-man uh he did okay but you, how do you follow yeah jack kirby now
1: you, how many years was it they
2: were on the book together from 61 to 70
1: okay wow so like nine years uh, uh well it's funny i we're in this conversation here we're sitting here it's not our normal recording mm-hmm. time so i i, I threw it on twitter real quick does anybody have any questions about anything and uh Otha M. Johnson, who's at uh, Juice Arelli on Twitter, yeah. says, If possible, can Bob describe the hype around the FF in the 1960s? What was it like?
2: It, it's what you can imagine for these movies now. If you're right. a comic book reader, and again, the books then, uh, this this sort of thing was selling hundreds of thousands of issues mm-hmm. a month, and, and out of nowhere. You walked into a store. There was no Marvel if you look at these first issues here, there's nothing that says Marvel. It's just sort of, you know. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I have my very old copy of Seven with a (laughs) giant ripped cover in it. Um, The problem was, you were dependent on stationery stores, candy shops. Mm -hmm. You had a fight to get a copy. You would have hoped the old guy with the cigar behind the counter would pull it. If you got an issue that nobody else did, you traded back and forth. I traded, I can't tell you how many Spider-Man copies to get FF books back from friends because you needed to read what what you had just missed because your store got three copies and they all disappeared.
0: Right.
2: Uh, you know, there were cartoons on the air by 67 for ABC. It was a very big property and it was the talk of the comic industry that there was something for grownups mm-hmm. that, that, and they had been ignored really since the comics code right? where they'd gone away from those sort of books. The things had changed right after the war. They wanted, they had new grown-up readers. Mm-hmm. They were they were done. It was a very safe industry. This was this was a hyped book, certainly. I mean, that is the perfect word, but it lived up to every bit of it because every month there was something you had never seen before in a comic book.
1: Right. Wow. Okay. Uh, I mean, we mentioned Namor and him falling in love uh, with Sue and all that stuff kind of happening, and Scott McDougall wants to know, did Reed, did Reed ever find out about Sue and Namor hooking up? Oh, instantly. Okay. In,
2: in issue six... Um, he, <laughs> There's a, there's a great oh, – it's a spoiler alert for a book from 50 years ago. Yeah. I'm just going to go with it. Yeah. Um, Reed catches Sue pining over a photo of Namor that she's trying to hide on a bookshelf. <laughs> uh, and then Namor actually shows up. Mm-hmm. But he's, he's in league with Dr. Doom and he floats the, floats the Baxter building into outer space. Oh, wow. There's a great shot. It's sort of from the roof down – looking down the entire front of the building over the island of Manhattan from you know, like five mm-hmm. miles up. Right. Only Kirby could have drawn this thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Reed knew. They got into some knockdown dragouts. outs. He and <laughs> Nehmer, Uh Ben helped, because he didn't <laughs> like the old fish face. He didn't right. a pasting. But again, he he helped them eventually. And at one point, Reed and Sue are, are broken up for two years.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: there's a battle in the Baxter building. It's issue 120. 129 Frightful Four have taken over And Reed is yelling at Sue uh, Get away Protect my child You're mm-hmm. the mother of my child. son Get out of here And at the end of it She holds her own and goes I'm more than the mother of your child mm-hmm. And until you realize that I'm out of here It's gone from the book From two years as a member of the team Shows up here and there you got to see her story They get back together Basically because the submariner fixes things so they have an interesting right. back and forth, which continues now through the Hickman run. You yeah. still had
1: them. Mm-hmm. So uh, Kirby leaves the book uh, mm-hmm. after 103 issues, yeah. and Stan keeps writing it? For a little while
2: longer. Uh, he's on it, off it, leaves, and you, we have Archie Goodman. Basically, any great writer that Marvel ever had right. took a run at this. Right, Marv Wolfman, Len Wein, uh, Engelhart, mm-hmm. Chris Claremont even yeah. in, in later years— it was the book to write.
1: Mm-hmm. So Kirby leaves, and then you were saying John Romita. John take, Romita takes for over. for a bit. He didn't want to do it to start with, mm-hmm. and Stan
2: convinced him to go ahead. And then John Buscema took over, and he did a really great run. Buscema is just great at drawing superheroes, though he hated drawing superheroes. Interesting. Uh, the story is that people buy his original pages as much for what's on the back, as on the front, because on the back are drawings of Conan. And um, Sonia, gotcha. all sorts of things. Just hated superheroes. Just thought it was all stupid. He mm-hmm. he wanted to do Tarzan. That's right. what he wanted to do. Uh, Usain was on for a long time through some good runs, even uh, Stan coming back. Uh, George Perez for a while did a nice run, uh, channeling Kirby. Rich Buckler in between, who definitely channeled Kirby. He basically swiped Kirby. Mm-hmm. They're fun, but it's obvious. You can <laughs> see what's going on. And the book is, was really in a holding pattern for a long time. There's some interesting stories uh, basically guys like Len Wein and even Engelhart. let's break up the Fantastic Four to mm-hmm. see what, right. what their relationship is and put them back together and someone would would just run off and so on and so forth. It, it took John Byrne in 81 to start things back up again. Right. So
1: after Kirby leaves in 70? 70. 70. 70 you're, you know, you, the next 10 years, good st- there's some good stories, some good art, but... Never anything that is the cohesive, kind of uh, standout that came with the initial hundred and three no. issues. And
2: really, that's where until Kirby left, the Fantastic Four is the flagship book at Marvel.
1: Right. Uh, and before we move on to that stuff, mm-hmm. your favorite thing in the world, the the Lactus trilogy. Correct. What uh, what numbers are those? Forty eight, forty nine, and fifty. Okay. Now,
2: what's amazing is that's, you know, this would now be a, I don't know, an 18-issue maxi-series. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, And again, in the midst of it, starts halfway through 48 and finishes Mm -hmm. sort of halfway through 50, lots of Inhumans, then followed up by the single greatest issue in the run of the book. Okay. And it's a one-shot called This Man, This Monster. Mm -hmm. Uh, No one can see the cover. The thing in agony on the on the But it's number 51. Number 51. comes right after the other three. Um, Reed has discovered the negative zone where Blastar and Annihilus and Mm -hmm. all those people live, and it's the first appearance of that. And Ben is wandering the streets in a rainstorm because he's unhappy. The Silver Surfer has spared the Earth because Alicia has intervened. She's shown him what beauty is on on Earth and why we deserve to live. And Ben thinks, well, how could she love him Mm -hmm. when there's a guy like this around? So he's wandering the streets beyond a funk. And he's drawn in by this odd scientist whose feeling is that, well, Reed Richards gets too much credit. He's just some bum. He's gotten lucky. Mm -hmm. This scientist replaces the thing. He actually turns the thing back into Ben Grimm, Mm -hmm. adopts the thing persona. He's studied, knows what he's supposed to say, goes to visit Reed. Reed's playing with his negative zone equipment, gets sucked into it. Ben's not going to help me. He let's go with the rope. He disappears into the negative zone with Sue screaming at him. Mm-hmm. And then he, this bad guy scientist realizes—spoiler alerts, folks. Uh, no, it isn't like what he thought at all. He really is a hero. He's only about other people. He dives into the machine, throws Reed back toward Earth, and dies himself. Mm-hmm. Coming off a giant cosmic epic, mm-hmm. going domestic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's what they did. It was always the back and forth.
1: Well, in that case, you need to talk about, you know, um, changing Ben Grimm back, a bit, thing back into Ben mm. Grimm or whatever. Uh, Scott Mandugo also asks, if you have any theories about why Reed couldn't really cure Ben Grimm in the beginning, it seemed like every other problem that got solved in a page, for Christ's sakes, the guy could invent unstable atoms, but couldn't figure out Ben's <laughs> condition.
2: Uh, John Byrne wondered about that too, eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, he... Reed would give him potions that would work sometimes for half an issue, mm-hmm. sometimes for a page or two, but never seemed to really get anything done. The closest he came was he was working with some viruses and nearly killed himself. in uh, issue one thirteen, he actually managed to find a way to change that Ben could change back and forth at will. Okay. The problem then became he Ben went a little nuts. Mm-hmm. The, the back and forth started to affect him. Right. Uh, what John Byrne came up with, it was an issue where there was a grown-up Franklin, mm-hmm. b- mysteriously aged by some other entity who I, I think it was spiral by my uh, – <laughs> whatever. Anyway, uh, and Franklin tries to change him back and then says to his dad, he doesn't really want to be changed back.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: He's afraid that Alicia won't love him if he's human.
3: Hmm.
2: So it's his own – Internal anxieties over not being the thing that keeps him the thing
1: right interesting that's interesting that's that, that's that's really cool uh so John Byrne takes over in eighty one mm-hmm. and now when he takes over, does he do anything drastic to kind of start his run to well, set it apart
2: as a matter of fact, it is sitting right here. his first issue is to, he uses uh, a villain that Stan thought was the worst he had ever come up with Diablo, the master of <laughs> alchemy okay. The book is called Back to the Basics. What Byrne wanted was to... He thought it had been lost. He had done a couple of issues as what he describes art robot mm-hmm. and written a couple of issues that some other folks had uh, had done. And he just wanted to restore this to, to the, a family. They were a unit. You know, they couldn't be broken up by anybody, even if they squabbled with each other. The family dynamic needed to be restored. So he just wanted to use the classic characters, the classic situation without going for he had just come off X-Men. Mm-hmm. he was about as big an artist as you could want right. at that point, and he just wanted that his handle on this property. And not all the soap opera elements you would see, though things would begin to drift into it. Uh, again, it's a family and things happen in families. Mm-hmm. Um, the f- four issues passed it's the anniversary issue, for instance, and that is 236. <laughs> which is probably his best. Uh, it's the origin retold, but slightly differently. They now don't seem to have powers. They're having dreams of these powers. They're in a little little town. Reed's teaching school. You know, Ben's married to Alicia. Everything seems normal except Reed's trouble with dreams. Johnny, Ben, everyone's mm-hmm. remembering space flights and all sorts of things. And by taking their powers away, you now see the humans again, mm-hmm. as opposed to the superhumans. So you've gotten it back to what Stan was trying, which had disappeared for the 10 years in between Stan, uh, Jack having left. And what it turns out is Reed is so convinced that he really is this superhuman Mr. Fantastic. He goes into his lab after arguing with his uh, the head of the department, Victor Von Doom, <laughs> And Reed takes a scalpel to his own arm, figuring well, I'm really elastic just, he's taken my powers away, but they they're there mm-hmm. I just can't access them, and nearly bleeds to death
3: oh wow mm-hmm. uh,
2: there's it's a doom story I, Should I ruin this one too? sure you can. okay uh Doom has captured all of them and shrunken them all down to about an inch and a half tall, and they're in a little like train set in his lab, <laughs> and they're these little Creatures are controlled by the puppet master who's stuck there, too, who just wants his stepdaughter to be happy with Ben Grimm. Mm -hmm. And Doom has sold him out, too. Wow. Reed's smart enough to realize, well, Doom is such a fanatic. These little versions of us, they -hmm. must have our ability to have powers, too. So he he irradiates the little people. They end up with their powers back. They beat Doom and (laughs) go on and on and on. So, how
1: long is Burn on the book? A little more than five years. A little more than five years. And uh, uh, is there anything, first of all, are there any like is there one or two stories that really stand out, uh, other than the one you just talked about? Sure. And did he leave any kind of mark uh, on it that has br- was brought to the next person who took it over?
2: Well, what he did more than anything else, again, just restored that family aspect. He saw a lot more Franklin. Mm-hmm. Uh, he really... And Stan
1: am- and Jack created Franklin? Stan, yep. F F FF,
2: FF, FF, Annual Six. Okay, just wanted to make sure. Uh, Franklin Benjamin Richards. Okay, <laughs> as opposed to Benjamin Franklin, which is the right. did make the thing pretty upset. What right. do you mean he's not named after <laughs> me? Well, you're his godfather, anyway. <laughs> um, you had Sue. Her, her powers grew to the point they were offensive as well as defensive. She wasn't just hiding behind somewhere. She now found ways to travel with force fields. <laughs> she, you know, constantly threatened Doom. Well, I'm just going to blow up, you know, from the movie, I'll blow you up with a force bubble inside your chest. Yeah. Um, He did Galactus tremendously well, uh, including Reed saving him at one point. Mm -hmm. They they defeat Galactus with the help of everybody. Right. Except you can't let him die because he's a natural force and part of the universe. Right. Which ends up in a, they they put Reed Richards on trial in front of all the other solar systems that were, Galactus has wiped someone out. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were in the middle of one of the to uh, speak of leaving Mark on things one of the stupid Marvel events it was you know Secret Wars mm-hmm.
1: which is like one of the first right It's one of the first <laughs> yeah. it's, uh,
2: everyone goes to some other planet and they beat each other senseless because mm-hmm. the Beyonder wants it so right um, what John Byrne asked them too is I want to explore something here leave the thing behind because he can change back and forth on this battle planet so right. he leaves the thing behind the thing gets a solo series that he writes some of and replaces him with the She-Hulk, okay. which changes the dynamic of that. And Roger Stern had just fixed her in Avengers. And now the She-Hulk added to the, the, the craziness and a different level mm-hmm. entirely. And also in between, you know, Franklin's now four and a half. He's not just a toddler anymore, even though he's at that point, he's, I don't know, 30. <laughs> he's four <laughs> right. and a half. Um, there's a momentous moment that. Resonates still now for people who read FF or, or and Fantastic Four and the Hickman infraction runs, in that in issue two sixty seven oh, th- we have to put spoiler alerts on this <laughs> so Could people go back to this.
1: Well, we're not here's the deal. We're not going to spoil anything in the last five, five years. years. Okay. Okay. <laughs> in
2: uh, in two sixty seven Reed and Sue they have gone off to the negative zone, and in one one lovely series of panels where. Uh, Sue and Reed are sitting in this room and they're waiting for the grand vizier or whatever to give them some information. And Sue tells Johnny Ben, Why don't you guys go disappear for an hour or so? Hmm. And you you they wander around, you come back, and Reed's putting on his shirt, and it's just right. it's just charming and lovely, and they embrace and kiss. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, Catwoman right. stripping Batman. <laughs> it's just a really charming mm-hmm. old 40s movie kind of thing. Well, the issue that's in two fifty. I believe is in 267 Sue's getting ready to give birth mm-hmm. she's having big problems as she did the first time from the cosmic radiation in her blood uh, Bruce Banner is otherwise occupied Reed turns to Otto Octavius to help mm-hmm. fights with him over the city Otto's gone a little crazy he's not going to be able to do anything Sue has a miscarriage oh wow which is uh, that's heavy stuff it's very heavy stuff and that would, you know, color the rest of that book. Uh, eventually, when Chris Claremont took over, years and years later, there was a, it was a grown Valeria, a teenage Valeria,
3: mm-hmm.
2: where it, was, it actually was Doom and Sue. And she sacrifices herself to re-energize Galactus to fix something else. This gets really complicated. <laughs> and the essence of that Valeria ends up in Sue's womb, and right. that's the Valeria we see okay. now. But that's it's a tie into mm. what happened with John Byrne all yeah. those years ago.
1: So, uh, you know, just ping-ponging a little bit here. Yeah. You know, you see now, and I'm reading Fantastic Four and FF now, and you see a lot of times, you know, Reed and Sue and Ben, they're having dinner with Victor Von Doom, and then they're, like you said, they, they help Galactic. So a lot of their villains often become... At times, they're friends much sure. more than you see in a lot of other comic books. Those those lines are very clearly drawn in a lot of other places, and sometimes they might begrudgingly team up. But there's not a lot. There's not times where they can benignly visit with that other person yeah. in order to, <laughs> you know, just have a conversation. Uh, X Men's probably the only place you really see anything like that because they're kind of on the same side just with two different viewpoints. Mm-hmm. When did that stuff start happening in the Fantastic Four?
2: Uh. And the, there's a series in the uh, in the '80s, mm-hmm. where, where, like f- three issues, four issues. Uh, if anyone remembers the Punisher television show, the one they, uh, yeah. the Punisher, the prisoner, prisoner, yeah. Um, they have this village in in Latveria mm-hmm. where everyone's happy and everything's nice, and he's captured the Doom captured the Fantastic Four and taken their powers away. Not really, but they just can't access them, and. You end up with a certain point with Sue walking in on him, mask off, the whole mm-hmm. nine yards, and they eventually come to agreement. The they 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 leave mm. because he has nobility and everything else, and that's where it began to. He would still do doom things,
3: mm-hmm.
2: but it was always with well, it's not always for the wrong reason. When he's trying right. to take over the earth, yes, yeah. <laughs> But it just a couple of years later, she recruited him to be in the Fantastic Four when Reed was taken over by a guy called the Overmind, mm-hmm. one of the out of space right. super bad guys, and the only person who could help was Doom, and he acquits himself quite nicely as a hero.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: He's the last man standing as his character nearly takes him out, but it, the power expended to take him out take out Doom allows the stranger who we may see in one of these Marvel movies right. to show up and go, oh, by the way, I needed you. Thank you very yeah. much. <laughs> yes. Marvel always had
1: conflicted villains,
3: yeah.
2: heroes. They'd switch sides back and forth.
3: Yeah.
1: Uh, so, Byrne is on for five years, about mm-hmm. five years. So, 86-ish, yep. he believes the book. Is there another long run that takes over after him, or do we have another one of those periods where the book kind of— You've got a couple of
2: periods where not much goes on there. Um, Roger Stern is in there, Tom DeFalco, Mm. five issues, six issues a year here and there. Walt Simonson takes over in issue 334 as a writer, and then 337 as Penciler end. -hmm. And that's right here. Always drawn like Walt. Right, yeah. And Thor right on the cover. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, They had him just, they wanted him to uh, debut at the same number as it did with Thor, which is 337. Okay. (laughs) They like doing things like that. Walt is in, you know, he, he didn't think he would fit with this, having seen all that mythology stuff, but his artwork can be so clean when he wants it to, and it just fits so perfectly here. What's really interesting, they did a lot of time travel stuff. And he introduced a concept in Thor that he used quite well here that I don't know why it hasn't come up again recently. It's the TVA, the Time Variance Authority. (laughs) And they were in She-Hulk fairly recently. They show up when you mess with the time stream too much.
1: Yeah. Everything's
2: broken now. Perfect right now, yeah. yeah, they should show up. Yeah. Um, Walt did a lot of really cool stuff, including, for those who read Civil War, they argue about a Superhero Registration Act. Mm-hmm. Reads on the other side when Walt Simons is writing it. Right. Walt only stayed a couple of years, mm-hmm. but had a, a you know really good run, which then was followed by another long, a five years worth of runs for uh, Paul Ryan, who is a veteran, and Tom DeFalco. Okay. And uh you end up with okay in between oh boy Johnny and Alicia get married mm-hmm. while Ben's away they fall in love with each other
3: oh
2: wow uh drama the, well it gets better <laughs> the, the falcon Ryan didn't think that was all such a great idea that just messed things up too much
3: because
2: mm-hmm. then you've got Ben and Johnny each oh, other's throats at some point right Alicia that's not Alicia she's actually a scroll mm-hmm. so Johnny's been married to a Skrull for a couple of years so she ends up in this book too uh, the problem is, it just Reed dies. He goes away. Sue's in charge, which is really good. Mm-hmm. But we're into this this period here where we're into the image mm-hmm. era. So they decide mm-hmm. to image up Sue Storm. Right. She's on the cover, for instance, of issue three seventy five with a gigantic gun. She does have a big gun, and she has big uh, guns. Yeah. <laughs> Uh costume with the four cut out in a hole, and yeah. it's just, just pretty hideous. And then they, when they got so much terrible mail. With the thing about, is
1: wearing a helmet.
2: He got his face ripped apart by
1: Wolverine. Ah, okay. Well, at least that Shanks. makes a l- little bit more sense yeah. than it pr- it pr- protection. <laughs> uh, well, his original costume had a helmet.
3: Oh, really?
2: It had a helmet and a shirt and everything <laughs> else in issue three. Sue made them. Mm. Here, you don't have to worry anymore. You, right. you, you can go out in public. <laughs> I look like a darn fool in this thing. He rips the, <laughs> the thing off and takes his, his hat off. And he, he had real pants on, j- just as here. Um, again, they got some terrible, terrible mail over, you know, Sue and her Rob Liefeld outfit with mm-hmm. the pouches and the bullets. and everything. Right. Why she needs these things, mm-hmm. who knows. And they tried to explain it as a, uh, it's a manifestation of a character that John Burnett created called Malice, where it's her evil side, the, the dreaded psycho man, has affected her, and she it's a helmet with spike, real God-looking spikes mm. and whatever, and she's wiping out the Fantastic War and everybody else, and it's the aftermath of that where she starts calling herself the Invisible Woman. Oh, uh, okay. Because she takes care of the Psycho Man off panel, and someone asks, well, what happened to the Psycho Man? He, he's no longer a threat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, Sue. Uh, so DeFalco and Ryan go for a good long while, and... Then Marvel decided, well, you know, we have to forget this pseudo-image stuff. Mm-hmm. With, well, Why is the Human Torch wearing a leather jacket, for instance? <laughs> you know, everyone had to have a jacket. Yeah. Uh, that's when they hired the real image guys to do the image books. Mm-hmm. So it's the, you know, it's the end of the onslaught event. And all the heroes are fighting in Central Park. And all of a sudden, they're all gone. Mm-hmm. So Jim Lee did Fantastic Four. And they look like a Jim Lee Fantastic Four. (laughs) Very hugely muscled, and Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Sue is um, endowed. (laughs) Uh, The the origin is mostly the same, but as with all things nowadays, you have to tie everything together. Mm -hmm. They can't just be Reed's a scientist and girlfriend and brother and the pilot, who's his best friend. No, Sue has to run the project, and Johnny's head of... The head of security, or something, or is okay. a spy. I forget what it is because I haven't read this since mm. then, probably. Though right. I, did, uh, I wasn't even, I stopped buying Fantastic Four. I know people oh, find wow. that hard to believe because it's just hideous. Six months into this experiment,
3: mm-hmm.
2: Marvel announced, Oh, by the way, we're going back. Right. Oh, you people, don't worry. It's, yeah. It'll be back. You know, we're going to get Peter David, and he's going to write a new series, and we're mm-hmm. going to fix things and put it back the way it was. So, then I then had to buy the ones i missed i st- I'm still missing tons of Avengers and cap and mm. I just ugh. <laughs>
3: um,
2: the universes get fixed because Franklin fixes it right he saved all the heroes in a little blue ball in his bedroom mm-hmm. or whatever it is, and that's a pocket universe where everyone lives and Everything can be fine again.
1: <laughs> so that six month period—it's just a six-month period, right? Well, it's a year it's of a these year. books. Year for me, books. it was
2: six months until I had a. Oh right! Back so was, after backwards.
1: six months, they said they're they're going to go back. Yeah. So Jim Lee uh, writes and draws it for a a, a year, a year. Uh, with Brandon Choi, his co writer, and then uh, it goes back and Peter David, Peter David puts every all the pieces back in place right.
2: the book reappears alan Loebdell and scott lobedell sorry, and alan davis okay uh for a bit and mm-hmm. that kept changing and changing and then we went through so we
1: have another transient period of writers yeah. and artists yeah okay. davis
2: did i think five issues mm-hmm. and then we run through as i said uh chris claremont and salvador laraca uh Biggest run that follows, though, it, it, it takes five years, but we get to Mark Wade right. and Mike Waringo, who do a really amazing, amazing job. Uh, it's Mark Wade. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only problem I have with his entire run, he doesn't seem to get Doctor Doom. <laughs> uh, he turns him very mystical. Mm-hmm. And that was always a part of it, but He decided to explore that mm-hmm. and how Reed can't process right. the magic idea. Yeah. Uh, That said, the relationships between them, he comes up with the idea that, well, they're imaginauts. They're not just superheroes. They're explorers in other realms and so Mm -hmm. on and so forth. And we get early on a sense that Reed does what he does. He calls himself this ridiculous Mr. Fantastic, and they do these crazy things and fight crime and live in this big building because he's guilty over what went wrong. Right. That he's cursed his friends Mm -hmm. to this life, particularly Ben, and the only thing is to make everyone, lo- the entire world, love what they do and
1: who they are. Right. So how long does Wade end up staying on the book? Uh, he's on for about three years, I mm-hmm. guess it is. Right. And I think you know a couple weeks ago we had Joey uh, Braccino on mm-hmm. and he was talking about reading the Marvel Knights 4, just the number 4, yeah. right? Uh, and how initially that was going to be the new Fantastic, Fantastic Four book, but kind of fans revolted a little bit that yeah. Mark Wade was off the book. Until they brought it back, correct? Right. Yeah. Now, th-
2: that Ford turned out to be a very, very solid mm-hmm. bit of storytelling. You had there, for instance, okay, Child Protective Services show up. Well, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Richards, you know, your building gets blown up all the time. You're now living on a pier because the Baxter Building's in a hole in the ground, and you expect to have two children? Right. <laughs> Uh Sue gets around that. We're mm. now into spoilers into newer things, so I'll just be <laughs> quiet because people are gonna start reading that. Mm. Um again, it had come about there were it looked as if you were doing it was a playwright, Roberto
1: uh, oh yeah, I can't remember his name. I'll look up his name while we're talking here, but yeah. Wire
2: it, or something like, yes, like that. Yeah, 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 I'm drawing a complete blank. And it was wow, playwright doing fantastic. Four a soap opera, Ree's gonna teach school, and then once you read it.
1: Roberto Aguirre Sacasa. Us, I was in the ballpark. You boulevard. were very close. I was you very,
2: were very, close very close, considering. Yeah, uh, and it gave you a, another sense of the level of nothing really happening. Mm-hmm. Interesting conversation. Interesting people in real life situations. Yeah, you know what would what would you do? Sue goes to you know to take Franklin to school, mm-hmm. and it was a fun issue.
1: Right. So. That's kind of ju- I know there was also a uh, I think it was a mini right it was uh, Grant Morrison and Jai Lee did that one two three four mm-hmm. thing I've never read it so uh, I was wondering you know because that's that same period I'm yeah I'm guessing. it was
2: not I it, I barely register right I know I have it but, yeah uh, there are tons of little minis unstable molecules and mm-hmm. before the storm with them and there have been more Fantastic Four series than nearly <laughs> anything right um. That really, the next big leap. Claremont is certainly the guy who got Valeria on the map, and he did a, a nice little run too. But y- you really have to wait for Hickman. It sort of drifted after Wade, mm-hmm. and then you're into Hickman, which is five. So what time is
1: what period uh, is Mark Wade? Like, Mark what, Wade's 2002
2: is when he starts. Okay, and does it for let's see, from 489 to 524. I actually did write that down. All
1: right. So then you even there what like 50 issues or so of kind of. Yeah, a little bits of everything. Yeah. Mark Millar.
2: Yeah. A, it's again, it's that transitory period where no one could really get a handle on. It. There are good issues, mm-hmm. and are still such powerful characters that they're fun to read. But you, it's that waiting for the next big moment.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: and so and then that next big moment is Jonathan Hickman, Hickman
2: who first did it's Dark Reign. Yeah. Uh, where it's basically the kids against Norman Osborn, mm-hmm. which is pretty hysterical, mm-hmm. but it works. <laughs> Especially when you, you know, Sue's mad at at Franklin, you know, pointing a gun at Norman (laughs) Osborne. He's just taken over your building and threatened to kill everyone, Mm -hmm. but she's a mom, and that's, you know, what you got to do. Hickman, it's interesting when when he was on our show, I reread his entire run. And when you read it that way, as much fun as it was month to month, reading it in a group, Mm -hmm. when you see that the first panels from his first issue are the last panels in his last issue. Mm And it's just, I, I i told you I was going to tie this together, right, and yeah. there it is right from you. He gave you Cosmic, never lost the family, and found a way to g- tell you the larger story that really, in some ways, that hadn't been a story as big as he had done since back from Stan and Jack.
3: Right.
1: And – uh he had a myriad of artists, right? as this is the modern way with sort of books now there's no I know Steve Epting was on it for a little while yeah, and it, came and it,
2: back around to finish I believe
1: Yeah 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 and I know on uh, when he does he brings well this brings us up to the point he takes over he, he, he kills Johnny Storm kills him in quotes yep. uh I mean this is not a spoiler because this is a thing that was Promoted, you know, basically on the cover. It was not a surprise yeah. when, when it occurred, as is with most big comic book things that happen uh, nowadays, which stops Fantastic for the yeah. regular book for a little while, right. right? It's
2: 587.
1: Yeah. And then did
2: FF. Mm-hmm. Now, we, I just had a listener who, who wrote to me who wants to start picking this up, and I had forgotten just, oh, you read this, run. Yeah. It's very confusing, yes. it's like, oh, wait yes. a minute. so here's the reading order, yeah. you read 587 then FF, you know one to 12, and yeah. then go back again. Mm-hmm. And even then some of the w- would be the intervening issues are you have to read two FFs and yeah. two fantastic fours to get yes. all the sense of it. Right. But there's instead of a senseless death, Johnny, first of all, not the character you would expect to be self-sacrificing. Mm-hmm. he does something really amazing. Uh I'll go so forth. I won't spoil that. Right. But he does something really special. Yeah. And when he's when he came back, he's different. Yes. He yeah. is actually a changed character, which mm-hmm. you don't see much. Not even the illusion of change. He's different.
1: Yeah. Absolutely.
2: Uh, you would have expected one of the others to do that, and yeah. so that no, I have to do that is mm-hmm. one of the lines, and he, and he does. But now you get you have the kids and the Future Foundation, and now you've, you've brought all that into play, so there's that family being reinforced
1: mm. again. So, and really, the the FF book, the Future Foundation book, transitioned from one thing to another thing. It started out as basically the Fantastic Four book. Just a continuation, but, right. But with Spider-Man now instead of Johnny uh, as the fourth member. Mm. And, and is there, did that seem natural? Was there precedence for you for that? Or when you're reading it, did it just seem like Marvel trying to... No. Put Spider-Man in another book.
2: Well, Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four go all the way back to the beginning. Spider-Man right. 1, he tries to join the Fantastic Four because he figures it pays well.
0: <laughs> right. Uh, okay. Yeah. You know,
2: he was trying to be a wrestler. So yeah. So that just seemed mm-hmm. natural to him. He and Johnny go back a long ways where they always had a – their meeting place was the top of the Statue of Liberty. Mm-hmm. Where they would always, you know, whether it was through Marvel Team Up or Spider-Man or Strange Tales, that's where they would always right. chat. They were always friendly rivals, sometimes mm. with the same girl,
3: mm-hmm.
2: which was always fun. You know, the the FF would show up at, you know, Forest Hills High, or Midtown High, I guess. Midtown, Midtown, Midtown High. High. Midtown yeah. High. Uh, and it was always, oh, that, that show-off torch and so on <laughs> and so forth. But then eventually in FF, they share an apartment, which is hysterical. I don't know if you've read that one. That is... Yeah, yeah, the you know, FF. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, yes, yeah
3: yeah, yeah. Well, there's like the, a negative
1: the... zone door to the negative yeah. <laughs> zone and stuff like that yeah well it would be yeah it's it's reed's plays it is um and, and so it transitions from that into the story of the other the kids and the kind yeah. of the, this future foundation this school uh, of children that are, he's they're kind of teaching to be the next generation of heroes uh which for me and this is kind of where i come into the picture as far as reading the book I feel like that's where the book really becomes something special, where it changes from being just, you know, just seemingly like a rebranded Fantastic Four into something completely different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No. You,
2: and that seemed natural too. Yeah. You were you had set up in in backgrounds these kids mm-hmm. and their personalities, and and all of a sudden here's the clone of the wizard showing <laughs> up, and we can we can bring him in too. The girl from Wakanda, yeah. Know, bring her in. Dragon Man, mm-hmm. uh, the, the reprogrammed dra- Valeria's reprogrammed Dragon Man. To, you know this would be nonviolent and big muffins.
3: Mm-hmm. Stop.
2: <laughs> you know various moloids who are they're the only moloids with intelligence because they've wandered into one of the high evolutionaries' machines. Mm-hmm. So they're now the smart moloids <laughs> for no reason, and they, they like Ben and <laughs> and Jennifer apparently. And you, are, you, it's funny, but it's human as well as the superhumans so just just i think a lot of people took to that book in a, in a way they hadn't before yeah or would have even attempted
1: absolutely so so then this that transition kind of happens once fantastic four comes back in with 600 uh like you said it brings johnny back yeah. and kind of in a few issues from there really kind of wraps up in a lot of ways the, the larger story he's been telling for five years or whatever mm-hmm. it's been uh his run finishes out very nicely. It's a very beautiful uh, ending. Yeah, in both books too. In both books. Yeah, great book. And the la- I think the last couple lines of the FF book are are just wonderful. Uh, really, you know, heart yeah. really touching and and beautiful. And then we move into obviously we now we're right at the cur- right against the current. You obviously love the Hickman run. You know, people obviously people listening to the show would know this already, but how do you feel like Fractions transitioned from the Hickman run into his own?
2: I think what Fractions done is something really interesting. You couldn't try to tell the same stories Jonathan Hickman did. Right. A, it doesn't seem like anybody's Jonathan Hickman in yeah. terms of the density of the storytelling. You see what's going on mm. in Avengers, new Avengers right now, a little a fin- infinity to come. But he still has that sense of cosmic, because we, we're all over the lot on this road trip he's taking yeah. him on. He's even reinforced the family idea mm-hmm. by putting the, the kids with the parents as opposed to being part of the Future yeah. Foundation. That gives you more the sense of, okay, their parents Mm -hmm. in a bad situation, they're for people who are reading that they're ill. Yeah. You know, Reed's been trying to keep a secret. He thinks he can fix things because that's what Reed does, fix everything. And now it's it's a family dynamic plus, the extended and the kids. We have the FF book transitioning into, okay, Reed would make sure the earth was protected. Right. You can't trust those darned Avengers because they're <laughs> they're always off doing something. Right. So, we'll we'll have our own little group going. So now that book is is the other kids plus some new heroes thrown into the mix and all logical choices. Mm-hmm. Sue would pick Medusa. They had a long history together. Once Medusa remembered who she was, and right. wasn't a villain anymore. She Hulk and Ben certainly. He she got him over Johnny marrying Alicia by basically beating him senseless and throwing him <laughs> through a, a wall. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's how uh, Ben relates to things. Uh, of course, Reed would pick a scientist mm. and Scott and, so you, and someone who's lost a daughter, yeah. as Reed did too, though he got mm. her back. Brilliant. And Johnny would pick a pop star. Right. He'd pick Lindsay Lohan.
1: The thing about him is that he picks her just because he forgot to yeah. pick somebody. <laughs> Johnny, didn't you forget something? Yeah, yeah, which I think, which I think is great uh so yeah i mean and that kind of brings us up till now where we're, we're still doing a lot of this stuff i mean we got a couple questions coming while oh, while cool. we were sitting here um you know well <laughs> andy wants to know how many times has the baxter building completely or partially disappeared it seems to be taken in stride when it does um it happens so much now that basically they have a button
2: a reset button they can right. push and the building <laughs> just reappears mm-hmm. all their stuff is lost but the building goes back up right. again as early as issue six, as I said before, Doom floats it into outer space. Mm-hmm. Uh, Terax blows off the top third of it when he floats all of New York into outer space. Mm-hmm. He, he's amped the, the problems a right. lot. I'm going to tell you it's at least a half a dozen
1: times. Right. And
2: that doesn't even count Four Freedoms Plaza that's gone once <laughs> or twice, too.
1: Right. Uh, so uh, Justin wants to know uh, your favorite story arc in the last 10 to 15 years. Wow,
2: that covers a whole lot of territory. Mm. Well, well, let's say all of Hickman's, right? <laughs> uh, but then within that, there are those single issues that we talked about from last year, yeah. where the, the the point one, the mm. Willie Lumpkin issue, mm. the Reed, you know, and Ben commiserating, you know, after he realizes, you know, when Franklin and Reed go off and see that, you know, Ben's five thousand years old because he yeah. only ages, yeah. you know, a week a year, day a year rather. Um, beyond that, the. the Ben dies during the Mark Wade era, mm-hmm. and they, they sounds ridiculous. They go to heaven to get him back. Okay, and Ben's not really thrilled. He's you know he doesn't have yeah. to be the thing anymore. Yeah, I, I'm fine, you know, leave me mm-hmm. alone. And they convince him to come back, and they meet God,
3: mm-hmm.
2: who is Jack Kirby. <laughs> it's Jack Kirby sitting at his drawing board, and he draws the rocks back on Ben Grimm and sends him back home. <laughs> So you know, Wade's run was really good. If we're talking about the last 10, you know, 10, yeah. 15, you know, the Wade runs Sarah Hickman, but
1: I'm loving what Fraction's doing too. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, so your favorite, just to clarify, your favorite Fantastic Four story arc is the Galactus trilogy? Yes. Okay. Because like, we got a couple people who asked that, but I, we covered that, but I want to make sure we said it. Um, Logan wants to know, uh, if you were to suggest a starting point for Fantastic Four, where would it be and then he asks, "What your favorite story arc is?" Obviously, start from the beginning. That's what you would always say. But right. if, 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 then, another point for you to start with from. Okay, if you have a
2: grasp of the characters, mm-hmm. right? You know, the, where you, you, because you've seen the movies or read their appearances yeah. elsewhere. Um, in the original runs, really, if you start at thirty-five, you know, reading, reading, and the gang go back to you know Empire State University, and that's where he proposes to Sue and. Mm-hmm. The next two years lead you through the Inhumans and Galactus and the Silver Surfer. Um, the Doom stealing the Surfer's powers that you saw in the last yeah. movie, that's in there. The Black Panther, Claw, it's all right there. Mm. That, it, it's certainly that it, it, general wisdom is that the Stan and Jack Fantastic Four is the greatest run of any comic book mm. ever just the amount of imagination and the things that were in it, even the one-off issues, they're just fighting with some general robot or the mm. mad thinker is doing something crazy. or The Frightful Force shows up and the FF, for instance, they need a, a nanny mm-hmm. for Franklin. Well, who can be the yeah. babysitter for a super-powered infant? Right. A, a witch. Mm-hmm. A literal Salem <laughs> witch named right. Agatha Harkness. Um so you want to read some stuff in there, mm. obviously. If, if you know enough about the book, if you have that basis, going for Burn, going mm. from 232, his five years, and they're all in uh, visionary mm-hmm. trade paperbacks, and there's two omnibus, those hundred dollar books that you know, if yeah. you put them in your lap, you'll never have kids. Right. <laughs> uh, those are those are very very worth reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that would be my second uh, recommendation.
1: All right, great. This is really funny because we talked about this. Uh, Boy Ackerman says, "Thing with a helmet, best thing ever, or best thing ever." <laughs> <laughs> Quotations on. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh,
2: well, only because he, he he's pretty ugly. Now, yeah. The, you know, and having big rocks off his face with pink ooze mm-hmm. coming out not so good that is better than i think it's during the Engelhart run where they decide to mutate him further and make him into sort of uh stegosaurus hmm. Interesting. and then because reed and sue quit to go raise franklin they recruit other members so johnny get, brings crystal back even though she's mm-hmm. married and he's married to a scroll though he doesn't know it yet and the Thing picks up a, a woman named Sharon Ventura, who is Ms. Marvel, she's calling herself. Mm-hmm. He gets mutated. She becomes the She-Thing. <laughs> it's just not good. <laughs> it's, just, it gets, it's just a little, uh, little out of hand. But the Thing with the Helmet goes back to FF3. Yeah.
1: So uh, Ryan Carroll wants to know, how long did the Spidey, Ghost Rider, Hulk, Wolverine era of the FF last? And Th- was it any good? Three issues. Three, three. issues
2: of Art Adams Wonderment.
1: Okay. But
2: it was it was just meant to be a joke. And it was on the the cover of the first one, instead of world's greatest comic magazine, mm-hmm. world's commercialist comic magazine. <laughs> it was like, those are the three biggest characters, four biggest characters Marvel head. It's the Gray Hulk,
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know, the Peter David right. one. And all just thrown in to go fight the Mole Man and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of fun. A lot of fun. But it just, yeah, it's a one-off, three-off, right. so to speak.
1: Uh, this is Jonathan Weber. He says... Could you help me understand all the different versions of Nathaniel Richards? <coughs> and is Kang and Immortus basically the same person from different timelines? Yes, and they're all Nathaniel's son. So all possibly Okay, so and Kang they might
2: be Ramatut and Doctor Doom while we're at it.
1: Okay. So there's really no way to not be confusing about it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that started you know, Ramatut
2: and Doctor and Doom meeting up and going, You seem awfully familiar mm-hmm. to me.
1: So they're the same they're like parallel universe. Oh, they could be the same person oh, in the okay. same universe just at different, different points. points. Okay. So it's a lot of timey-wimey stuff. Yeah.
2: Okay. But you look at what just happened in Fantastic Four. There were 47 dooms yeah. watching the birth of the new one. Yeah. Look at the magi in Yes,
1: absolutely. Um, so King and Amortis, basically the same person in different timelines. Yes. and
2: so is the Scarlet Centurion.
1: Right. So, and both Not probably, all three of them probably are the sons of Nathaniel Richards? Mm-hmm. Okay. okay.
3: Uh, and they might be Doctor Doom, too, yeah. just for fun.
1: And all these different versions have to do with like all the different. the multiverse, basically, right? Yeah. You know, the Council of Reeds and. Right. Like all, a, they were killing
2: off the Nathaniels, too. We were down to one. Yeah.
3: Right.
1: Okay. So that's all just different dimensions, stuff like yeah. that. Uh, Brian Davis wants to know what would you think the best way to handle Doctor Doom's origin in a movie?
2: The right way. <laughs> um, for. Making him into evil businessman right. was not the right way. Right, uh, As we had Marty Langford on a couple of weeks back, uh, that the million-dollar movie mm-hmm. did his origin the right way. Arrogant Dr. Doom does not want to be told that his computations are off right. and blows his own face off. Mm-hmm. He should be the king of the country. That should all be there. You need to layer the arrogance in because mm-hmm. that's going to inform everything else he does. Right. He has to be as smart as Reed, and you can't have... You don't need to tie their origins together into the space flight. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's having them meet his kids, that balance between we were friends but we can't be anymore because you did something or didn't or mm-hmm. I perceived that you did something, the dramatic tension there, yeah.
1: it's just too good to throw away yeah. over
2: we can make some special effects on a spaceship. Yeah.
1: It's similar to the Magneto-Xavier type yeah. uh, of relationship that they have. So that,
2: that is really a product of many, many years later. Right. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. Dr. Doom didn't have an origin when you first met him. That happened
1: in Annual 2. Mm-hmm. It's amazing, you think about it, you know, we talked a lot about on the podcast, obviously, about the, you know, Snyder creating this Court of Owls and everything, and it's amazing to think that back when you were reading comics, that was happening every week, you know, it, it was yeah. all new, it was all, this is a new villain, this is a new hero, this is a, you know, a new situation, and and it's it's funny how excited we get about something that's good that's new now, and it happens every once every couple of years. Right, and then, okay, Marvel was running...
2: They only had a certain amount of titles they could put out until mm-hmm. they really busted through, uh, mm-hmm. where the distributor finally said, "You know, do what you want." They, you remember, they had split books for the longest time. Right. Tales of Suspense was Iron Man and Captain America. Tales to Astonish was was Giant Man and the Hulk, and then it was Samara and the Hulk. Mm-hmm. And once they they were just selling so I was like put out whatever you want. Right. Just, just go ahead. Just sell books. yeah. Please yeah. <laughs> make us some money. But every book they put out. Had something magical happening every month because okay, here's the Galactus trilogy. The same month in Spider-Man mm. might have been Doc Ock, right? And Iron Man fighting the Mandarin, mm. and the Avengers were were fighting Kang. Mm. Uh, One or all of them. You wanted yeah. to get all of them all done. DC took them a long time to catch up. That what's happening across the street here? Why are mm. their books outselling us? Right. They were stuck in the past for a long time. You mm. know, Lois was still trying to figure out Superman, and mm. Batmite was still popping up. And finally, it was sort of 64 when they went to the new-look Batman, Carmine mm-hmm. Infantino, where they said, let's start to fix right. this. And the book started to drift a little more. That's when Neil Adams went over there and did
1: Dead Man. Mm-hmm.
2: And all of a sudden, oh, okay, now there's stuff over there, too.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, and one final question. Sure. Uh, very serious question. This is from Captain uh, Ron. He says, okay. does the thing poop orange rocks, or is it just the regular brown smelly stuff?
2: <laughs> it would depend what he had for lunch. <laughs> I I would assume his internal organs are not made of rock, despite what we saw in that movie, because, well, how would he breathe and all the rest of it? He does seem to have teeth and a tongue. He does. He does. We have to assume his pancreas and liver (laughs) and and colon all work properly.
1: All right. So that's it for the questions. Uh, And that's it for our History of the Fantastic Four. Uh, Thank you, Bob, for coming at prepared and coming with all this information uh, we will definitely do more of these i know that leonardo really wants us to do a history of the different ages of comics and we will do that absolutely when we have another chance to do one of these but until then uh thank you so much bob
2: my pleasure thank you for letting me share
1: Alright guys, we are back uh, for our Pulpuri edition of Talking Comics. Uh, we uh, we spoke with Bob about the history of the Fantastic Four, and uh, now we're going to do kind of an uh, odd book of the week segment. It's not really books of the week, it's going to be uh, odd books, weird books, or just something we've never talked about before. Uh, when I brought this up, Bob immediately had an idea of what he wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to pass it off to Bob first. Bob, give us your book. Okay, it is from
2: 1965, and it's Thunder Agents, okay. which IDW has just acquired the rights to in a rather long and involved process involving four different companies and lawsuits, and hmm. Rob Liefeld and Penthouse Magazine, and weird. You name it. Uh, in the wake of the James Bond movies being successful, The Avengers on television and The Man from U.N.C.L.E., uh, Wally Wood, who had been at Marvel at that point doing Daredevil uh, and some Avengers work and had been with EC back in the 50s, posited an idea to this fellow named uh, uh, Harry Shorten who basically published porno paperback novels. Okay. And I was looking to branch out into real money because the liberalization of media was going to happen. He thought his little porno company was not going to have anywhere to sell books, so he wanted to go into comics. Mm. So Stupid man. <laughs> stupid man. <laughs> hooked up a deal with a company that distributed DC books, and Wood presented him with this idea of melding spies and superheroes. So Thunder is an amalgam for the higher United Nations defense enforcement reserves. Mm. It's not just Thunder.
1: No. Uh, initially Wally was- Wood is one of those like great old-timey, I-create-things names, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, you know? But he was a
2: um, very troubled fellow who never quite felt he was getting enough attention, whatever. So this was all him. It was put on him, created, hired people to work on this. So uh, he and a fellow named Lynn Brown, uh, whose name actually gets used as the secret identity for Dynamo, the lead character. He has a thunder belt that he turns a dial and is super-powered for an hour at a time. They... They hijack a whole bunch of weaponry from a really bad fellow named the Warlord, turns out, lives under the Earth. This is getting too involved for this. <laughs> anyway, Len Brown, he, he and Wally Wood actually created Mars Attacks okay. to go with everything else just a couple of years before. But in this, you know, they only ran 20 issues and two sidebar issues, No Man and Dynamo, and actually Undersea Agent, who they introduced a little bit later. Um, it was successful, was selling. And was profitable. The thing is, DC apparently put pressure on the distributor and the books got canceled. Mm. So it only lasted about three years. Because In this book, Dan Atkins, who just passed away, Gil Kane, Mike Sakowski, Steve Ditko, providing art here. Um, you've got, again, Dynamo is their sort of Superman. Uh, we have Mentor, who is a, he has a helmet that allows them to read minds and control other people. We've got No Man, who sort of looks like The Vision... Mm-hmm. And, but he's blue so he looks more like Dr. Manhattan he's a dying scientist who the in the lab of this warlord they find these android bodies he can shift his mind from one to another so he could die every issue
0: oh cool Yeah, and he's just Kenny.
2: shift yeah. yeah and just shift his mind over uh, then we had some regular spy characters with the Thunder Squad they do all the little sort of dirty work the demolition mm-hmm. stuff or whatever uh, some great villains including the people are going to laugh when I say this name but the Iron Maiden it was yeah. one of, one of, right, of Wallywood's greatest creations and one of the sexiest female villains in all of comics. And Oh, yeah. There she is. White uh, man came. <laughs> <laughs> so, the book only lasted 20 issues, but it was very well remembered by everyone for years and years. So a film named John Carbonero took the rights, uh, put out two issues in the 80s. It disappeared for a while, showed up again from Deluxe. Under the, Wally Wood's mm-hmm. Thunderation with George Perez Art, Steve Engelhart writing, uh, Keith Giffen, Jerry Ordway, Rich Buckler, and uh, uh, what is his name now? George Dennis, who put this book out, didn't have the rights to put it out. He got <laughs> sued out of existence. Saul Brodsky, who used to be Stan's right-hand man, he put it out, got sued. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rob Liefeld was going to do it. And got sued. Wow! DC announced in 2003 they were going to do it. Mm-hmm. Even they solicited it in the books, and yeah. it, it vanished. They did it about a year or so. They ago. They did, yes. But they didn't use these characters. Use the daughter of Dynamo and, and a right. few others. Right. So other I things. read
1: the first issue of that, and that basically the idea was that the government kind of gave them superpowers, but in exchange they had like a shelf life of how long they were going to live. That was the.
2: Yeah, well, there is one of those characters here. Oh, okay, I okay. I don't, okay. don't want to say too much right. in case some goes to get yeah. here, but yeah, okay. we're, we're that, that goes here. It is coming back from IDW this mm. summer, and they're going to use these original characters, updated, mm-hmm. but uh, take another shot at this. If you love spy stuff and superheroes, it's a little of both, and if they do this the way they're, they're saying they are, let's, uh, I'm going to hope for the, in the, in the original run of this, it was just great art and a great time melding a lot of things together. Wonderful creators. I don't know who's going to do this for IDW to date. I don't know. I don't know I don't either. I see the announcement, yeah. but if you get a chance, check out these old ones. They've been reprinted in seven archive editions from DC. Hmm. How long they'll still be available since they now have lost the rights. I don't know. They're still going for about 50, 60 bucks a shot. Uh, the old original books are not expensive to get. The problem is finding them because Tower was not collectible. wasn't a big company. Uh, it took me the better part of 25 years to get a complete set of books. And that was in dollar bins. It was in auctions. It was everything. And what I have here, the first issue is the one I actually bought off the newsstand in 1965. Wow. For a quarter. That's
0: awesome. The artwork in it is spectacular. Yeah,
2: Wally Wood is, uh, he was the Dave Stevens of the 50s and 60s. It certainly, uh, please Steve, go ahead. You know, t- take a look at whatever you feel like. I'm touching it. He's touching Thunder Ages number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wood was a brilliant science fiction artist for EC. He did their weird science, weird fantasy, and those sort of things. Did some horror, did lots of mad magazine and the mad comic books in his time. Very expressive faces, wonderful poses, very muscular. Um, just a really brilliant, brilliant artist. That he's a name that's sort of forgotten at this point. <laughs> that's the Iron Maiden. There she is. She had a thing for Dynamo. So she'd she'd have him chained up to some table until his thunder belt ran out or whatever. It was always sort of teasing at him, like, "Why don't you join me? What are these thunder <laughs> agents? Crap, come over with me." And in. Might have even been the last one. It might have been the DC one that just came out where the character that uses the Thunderbolt uh,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: powers is actually the daughter of the Iron Maiden and Dynamo.
1: Uh, Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, The creative team for the IW series is Phil Hester, who's writing, who wrote Godzilla and Green Arrow. Okay. at some point, and uh, th- with uh, Andrea DeVito, who did Dungeons & Dragons, like a dra- Dungeons & Dragons book, doing the art on it. So I don't know that team, but that's the team, the team that's doing it. Uh, coming up from IDW this year, right? Yeah, this summer. Oh, wow. Okay, there you go. So Thunder Agents. Thunder Agents. Steve, <laughs> going to speak also about a classic. Yeah.
0: Something that's in- inspired artists and writers for years and years. Well, I think you're going to be quite surprised by what I have to say. <laughs> Uh, First of all, I just want to throw a little disclaimer out. Uh, The language uh, that I'm about to use, I'm going to try to use as little of it as possible. Might get a little uh, not safe for work, so just so you know, my book uh, that I found in a bargain bin for $5 this past weekend uh, is called Superfuckers, and it is by James Kochalka. And this is a superhero book for people that either love or hate superheroes. Essentially, what this is about is a group of superheroes that they're all assholes. They're all through and through assholes. And they're holding tryouts to have two new asshole superheroes join their asshole team. So... It's one of those things that I sat down to read it. I didn't know what to expect. It came highly recommended by the guy behind the counter. His name is Brom. He's like, "Oh, dude, you got to check out Superfuckers." So I said, "Well, the it's very deceiving because the the cover art and the art throughout the book is very uh would be very kid friendly. It's got very much a uh, Balthazar and Franco Tiny Titans kind of look to it with the, you know, the big bright colors and the simplistic character designs. Um, this is a book that if you're easily offended by uh name calling, by racism, by uh oversexualized themes and such, this is not a book for you.
4: So for nobody.
0: No. <laughs> no, no, no. And I'll be honest with you. It took me it took me about 60 pages to really get going with this book and to actually really start enjoying it. I was reading it and reading it and I was I kind of I didn't get it. I was just like okay, it's a lot of profanity, it's a lot of ridiculousness. Why why did I buy this again? And in the middle of everything, I realized that as I was getting to know the characters that I was actually starting to enjoy their Ridiculous, crass, and rude antics. Um, I'm not a person who's easily offended by almost anything. It, it's a book. It's meant for entertainment. You know, you don't have to take it to heart if you don't want to. If if these kind of things offend you, then obviously don't even bother. But I'm one of these people that I can I can take it or leave it. Anyway, it just what happened was I read this and I put it down. And I, I finished it and I said, all right, so that was different. That was weird. That's definitely weird enough to talk about on on this particular uh, section of the podcast. But then I woke up this morning and was talking to my friend Brendan. And the first words out of my mouth when I got him on the phone was, dude, I have a book that you will absolutely love. <laughs> and no sooner that I said that, I went to go and check online. I actually posted a photo of the cover of the book, and to my surprise, I actually got several comments from people that absolutely, positively, not only, excuse me, were they buying this series when it was coming out. Uh, By the way, it was put out by uh, Top Shelf Productions. Uh, I'm not entirely certain of the year, but uh, I could check on it for you, if you even care. So... (laughs) I just I was surprised by people who were like, "Oh my god, you found, you know, you found that, you read it, blah 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 blah." Apparently, this uh, James has a, a following of sorts and he's known for doing these kind of really off-the-wall books. But I grew to appreciate it because of the absurdity and the weirdness of it. Like in trying to describe to you a couple of things that happened uh, during this book, One of the superheroes is a uh, female superhero who's very much the Marsha from Brady Bunch of the superhero team, where her superpower is to expend uh, tremendous amounts of energy, but she can only use it if she recharges her powers. She recharges her powers by brushing her hair exactly 1,000 times. So that's a little bit of it they uh they live in this kind of backyard uh behind like a baseball diamond kind of thing, and there are living tumors that are hanging out in the sewage system behind their hideout that are essentially trying to infiltrate the 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 lair because one of the tumors is in love with one of the superheroes uh they're constantly doing drugs, beating the crap out of people. Like I said, it's a strange, strange, strange mm-hmm. book. I think Bobby's <laughs> like, why are you even bothering to talk about this? <laughs> you wanted to go weird. This no, is about no, a, this is about as weird as it you gets. Definitely you win. Weird. Yeah, you it is. Definitely win. It's so weird. There's a guy mm-hmm. called Plant Pal. There's Super Dan, where they're they're in like this. Other dimension and one of them can handle it and the other one can't and he's constantly every time they go back to them they segue back to the other dimension he's steadily falling apart and the the partner that he's with that can withstand the dimension all he cares about is getting sandwiches and eventually like the other guy all of his skin melts off and it becomes a uh, like an omnipotent flaming head that can magic things into the dimension and it's just so bizarre. There's a uh, like a glass case that's holding a piece of one of the superheroes. With their, they actually trapped their childhood within a glass case. So it's him sitting on a hilltop, in like, and there's like like real time weather, and there's sunsets, and the the moon comes out at night, and it's this whole part of his past that's existing within this jar. And then something happens to the jar throughout the story. One of them wrecks it or whatever. And it ends up causing this catastrophic event within the book. And spoilers, they never tell you how it gets solved.
4: They move <laughs> to the
0: next issue. And it's just like, oh, you thought we were going to tell you how this all worked out? We're not. Mm-hmm. We're just going to move on uh, to other things because that's a lot more fun. Right. And instead of feeling gypped and instead of feeling like I was cheated, I've, I don't know why I would feel that way. But... I I almost didn't even want an explanation. I accepted that I wouldn't get one because mm-hmm. of just how weird this book was. Right. Um, like I said, not something you could recommend to pretty much 99% <laughs> of the comic book reading population. But if you are not easily offended by things, you want something really, really off the wall that just will literally crap on your brain. With its its rudeness, mm-hmm. uh, you're just in that mood that day. I strongly recommend Super Fuckers. All right, yeah. there you go,
1: <laughs> there you go. Uh, all right, so I don't know how any of us
0: are gonna follow
1: that one up. I should have gone
0: last. Yeah, you
1: should have. <laughs> <Yep. laughs> um, so I went to the the sh- I went to the store the other day and I said I gotta find a weird book to read, something a little a little bit you know uh, uh, off kilter. Uh, but it's tough. sometimes you look and I have a tough time picking up books that I'm afraid I'm not going to like because I'm spending my money and I want to enjoy what I, what I yeah. buy, you know? So I thought, okay, who's the weirdest writer that I love? And that would almost surely have to be Grant Morrison. So I was like, let me find, not the superhero stuff, let me find the weirder and more independent stuff that he did. And he's stuff, you know, he does the inv- he's done he did a really long run on a book called The Invisibles that he created, but I mean, that's a long running series and I didn't want to do that. I want to get something that's kind of singular. So, I looked some stuff up and I found this one shot uh, from Vertigo he did called Kill Your Boyfriend. Uh, it came out in 1995. He wrote it in 1994. Uh, and the reason I, 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 I bring that up is because the, the story is about... Well, I'll read you the description on the back. Girl meets boy. Girl falls for boy. Boy takes girl on violent rampage through English suburb. Murder, sex, drugs, and anarchy Follow. Uh, Kill Your Boyfriend, a -a tilt-a-whirl story of two crazy kids who fall in love. Uh, Very much has that sort of natural-born killer's sort of feeling to it. However, it was written before uh, that movie came out. So it's a story about a a very uh, normal girl, a bored girl. She's bored with her life in the suburbs. She's dating a guy that uh, doesn't seem interested in, in having sex with her or really progressing anything. and she meets this kind of bad boy who seems to not care about anything and does some kind of despicable things. And because he's so different from her normal life, she falls for him and they go on this sort of crime spree throughout England. Uh, it's very bizarre. I mean, the, the, she talks to the, she talks to you while it's happening, you know, at one point she's like, Oh, well, well this is what I wanted. So you can hardly blame. I can hardly blame <laughs> anybody for what's <laughs> happening right now. Uh, you know, just some really, really bizarre stuff. Uh, It's very much a very big satire of, I think, suburban culture and what both, what I think young people sometimes think they want and what older people think, what, how awful the stuff is that kids get up to. So I think it's kind of a satire on both ends. Um, The art by Philip Bond is, is, is really, really nice. It's, it's sort of old school for the uh, the amount of uh, despicable things that are happening uh, in the book, which include uh, the the protagonists having sex on the hood of a hearse. So there oh. there some very bad things that happen, but uh, it's very it's darkly funny, uh, you, you know, very self contained, and it, it was it was a lot of fun to read. And if you like stories like Natural Born Killers and stuff like that, that take take these sort of uh, base urges that we all have to the next level, then you'll probably enjoy Kill Your Boyfriend. It's short. It's contained. uh, You can read it pretty quickly. Sounds
0: like fun to me. It it, it (laughs) is fun. Uh, I meant the sex on the hearse thing.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So that that was mine. It's Kill Your Boyfriend, Grant Morrison, and Philip Bond. All right, Stephanie, let's uh, end with you.
4: All righty. So when we had Fiona Staples on the show, however long ago now, um, she mentioned a comic called Tiger Lawyer.
0: Yes, I totally remember her. I wanted to read that. You found it?
4: Yeah. Oh,
0: I'm, I'm getting to that
4: thing. so loud. <laughs> well, so I found it. Anyways, I actually knew about it for a while, and they kind of had copies of them, I think, at San Diego last year. But um, they actually just turned up on Comixology Submit. Oh, my so, God. what?
0: Oh, my God. Go ahead. Don't oh, ignore Oh, I thought me. you were Go. actually
4: interacting. With you?
0: Shh.
4: Yeah, that's right. I'm getting you back. Go for Anyways, it. so Tiger Lawyer. It is exactly what it sounds like. It's written by, created and written by Ryan Ferrier, art by, well, there's two stories in each issue. There's only two issues so far. I'm not entirely sure if there's going to be more or not, but basically it's a lawyer and he's a tiger. He's a tiger lawyer.
2: Not a lawyer for tigers, but a lawyer who is a tiger.
4: (laughs) I only represent
0: tigers. tigers. (laughs) He didn't mean to eat the child, but he (laughs) beat him.
4: Wow. He represents people, and he wears a suit, and he talks, and he is a really great lawyer. He has, like, never lost a case. Mm. Well, of course
2: not. He'll eat the other side. The first
4: story (laughs) is called Attorney at RAR.
0: Nice. Yeah.
4: And basically it's just, you know, tiger lawyer trying to get his client you know off the hook and it, it's sort of just a typical law room, law room? courtroom. <laughs> a Law room, Anyways, that's the technical room. term
0: a raw room raw room Rawr. 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 but
4: you know, it's fantastic, you know, at one point in time the other lawyer is like, "Yeah, damn tiger bastard I'll kill you," and he's like not if I kill you first, with justice whoa <laughs> and then you know there's there's stuff happening and it's great and then there's like a second book and it's more sort of not the courtroom so much as kind of the investigative investigative side yes.
2: of of tiger lawyering yes
4: yeah he's going to go find out you know he has a client that he thinks is innocent but he doesn't know how to prove it and he sets out to find out how he can prove his Non-guiltiness.
1: <laughs> You're good with the terms. It's non-guiltiness.
4: <laughs> and again, it's written by Ryan Ferrier, but then this time the pencils and inks are done by Vic Maholtra. So it's pretty fantastic. It's really great. And, I mean, it's just silly. What can you expect? It's called Tiger Lawyer, people. But um, I believe you can get physical copies from the website, I think it's just tigerlawyer.tumblr.com, but you can also get them on Comixology Submit for what I suspect is probably 99 cents. Mm -hmm. So, Tiger Lawyer. Very Ah! great. Could
2: (laughs) could the Tiger Lawyer get off the bear with a monocle if he did something wrong?
4: (laughs) Would you say he's smarter than the average bear?
2: That's why I'm asking.
4: Well, who knows?
3: (laughs)
1: Who the only way we will ever know is if that happens.
4: What?
1: <laughs> this is one of the universal questions: Can the tiger lawyer get off the bear with the monocle?
4: Let's debate. Go, Steve. <laughs> what do you think?
0: Gee.
1: Well, I, astonishing you know, X Men. Uh, <laughs> <I>, yeah. <laughs> A
0: little callback there. <laughs> well. <laughs> I would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> if I had a tiger for a lawyer, I would imagine that's pretty damn expensive. So he better be good. Mm-hmm. It's true. He
4: is. Did you not hear? He has not lost a case. Yeah.
0: Oh, it's a good lawyer. It's He's a, a good really lawyer. good
4: lawyer. It's
2: a really good Even lawyer. Even Perry Mason lost a case.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well. There you go. Well. There you go. You know. Sh- All right. Sheer so- <laughs> Khan is my lawyer. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah.
1: So we got Thunder Agents, Superfuckers. Yeah. Kill Your Boyfriend and Tiger Lawyer. Some it's little like bit of A d- little different taste For you guys uh, To check out While While uh, We're we're recording from the past yeah. Right now uh, Time machine Time machine podcast right now So uh, I put a call on Twitter And Facebook also said, Hey give us Give us some questions Let us Let us know what you want us to talk about We'll do a listener segment for you guys I And mean, we got hmm. a, a lot of responses uh, One of them uh, Let's see Where is it right here oh, which writers or directors would you like to see take a shot at comics or a comic book movie? Bob, why don't we start with you? Sure. Well, Bob got I got a paper.
2: I've got to get a, yeah, I got to get a prop first of all. But uh, to answer the question seriously, first of all, <laughs> before I go somewhere else mm-hmm. with this completely off the off the wall, Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guy who makes Indiana Jones and Jurassic Park. I want to see handle a superhero somewhere down the road here. Yeah. Real flat-out one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one thing I do want to mention, because I did actually see this question earlier, mm-hmm. uh, in the world of comic book journalism about 10 years ago, Mark Millar, who was then writing for CBR, came up with the spectacular April Fool's Day joke of saying he knew someone who was writing an autobiography of Orson Welles who was claiming to have found uh, actual sketches and casting notes that Orson Welles was making a Batman movie in 1946. Hmm. And as he had played the shadow on the radio and had always expressed admiration for comics and that some of the shots in Citizen Kane actually came from things he'd seen in comic books, it all seemed rather like, oh, yeah, this could you know sort of work. And when he starts saying, oh, he, for instance, had cast his old friend Marlene Dietrich hmm. as Catwoman and Jimmy Cagney as the Riddler, and Basil Rathbone as the Joker, and that he, uh, Orson, wanted to play Bruce Wayne and Batman, and mm-hmm. the studio went, no, you, you, we won't want you directing and writing and playing two lead characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they decided to go with Gregory Peck instead. Now, they're not going to make this movie. All these people are dead. <laughs> what I do want to see is an animated feature with the likenesses of these stars done in some sort of, like, Alex Ross way as a cartoon. hmm So, I want to see that too.
3: All
1: right.
2: That's my second crazy answer.
1: All right. There you go. Uh, You know, for me, uh, you know, there are obvious ones. I'd love to see some form of a J.J. Abrams directed uh, superhero movie because I think he does uh, that kind of stuff really, really well. And I think that he gets the heart and the bigger action stuff down uh, very well. Uh, Duncan Jones, who did Moon, Mm. love to see, uh, you know, a very cerebral comic book movie uh you know from him and also i i think and this name has been banned about before for other bigger projects and i think some of the superhero superhero realm as well including justice league would be david yates the guy who directed the last uh, four harry potter movies Harry potter. yeah because obviously he can handle very big movies very big casts and a lot of pressure uh and big effects pictures so th- th- those would be my picks for, for oh. some directors uh stephanie anybody for you
4: yeah I was actually really worried that you were going to take one of mine. But, okay. So I have two. So again, we, we don't have to name the movie. Just who we want to take a shot. At yes. Him, right? Absolutely. Okay, so I think Guy Ritchie could be a really interesting choice for an action wow. movie. Obviously, mm-hmm. not anything you know in depth.
1: Yeah. He'd be great, like, greater, like a Constantine movie. Totally. Yeah. It'd be perfect. Um,
4: so I think Guy Ritchie, you know, in the vein of, like, Snatch Lock, Stock, Two mm-hmm. Smoking Barrels kind of thing. Yeah. And then my other choice would be Luc Besson.
1: Luc Besson. uh uh-huh. Yeah. Besson. uh Because I
4: think, again, the same thing. He could make a really cool action movie. And, oh, yeah. I mean, he's hit and miss sometimes, but I think for the most part, I like his stuff more than I don't.
1: Yeah. He barely directs movies anymore. He mostly just produces Produ- them. Yeah. Um, but the but movies I mean, he's directed, I've I've pretty much yeah. loved. A killer female lead character movie. Yeah, yeah.
4: He writes yeah. a ton of stuff. Still, like, he does. He, yes. Yeah, yeah. Like I mean, I think that could be a really cool mix yeah. up of things.
1: Yeah, I mean, no. is, pardon. I said, yeah, absolutely.
4: So I mean, did Danny Boyle do a superhero movie? No, he
1: hasn't. I was just but he yep. said that he will not do one. Oh,
3: yeah.
2: Well, no, he did the Olympic opening ceremony. That was enough superheroing for just yeah, about anyone. Anyway.
4: That's he did. true. Well, Guy Ritchie and Luke Besson. Those are my choices. There
0: you go. Steve, what do you got for us? Uh, I'm racking my brain. I would actually uh, really love to see a Hawkeye film from the Coen brothers. I mm-hmm. think that they would. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if they could do big. I mean, I don't know necessarily that the action would have to be too big. Mm-hmm. I just think the, you know... Limit it to just, you know, the inner city, quirky characters. I mean, the, the, what we call the, the tracksuit Dracula's, that little Mm -hmm. mob that he has going on, Matt Fraction in that book, that they're just, even though they say bro a lot, there is a lot of personality and that their boss, that the old man that they all answer to, Mm -hmm. it just seems like if you gave that character to the Coen brothers, that they could really do something with him. And it could be a lot of fun, kind of a, um, like a, oh God, I don't even know, like a uh, No Country for Old Men kind of area, but in the city. The What's that?
4: You said for Hawkeye, right? Yeah,
0: I don't know. I just, it was the first thing that came to my mind. It's just something that I would like to see. I don't know mm-hmm. if anybody's going to agree with me. Mm-hmm. I just oh, think no, it would be fun. Because, I mean,
4: you use the word fun, and then Coen Brothers. They're fun!
1: They, Are you kidding they me? They do fun stuff. I mean, No Country for no. Old Men is a bad Not. example of Coen Brothers' yes. fun. Uh, the Big Lebowski. Big Lebowski or... Yes, Even Fargo yeah. is Raising Arizona. Fun. Raising, Fargo yeah. has fun to it. Uh, you know, Martin um, like Miller's thing. Place. I, mean, I wouldn't
4: use yeah. fun with it, but I do like those movies. Yeah, yeah. there's I definitely the a sense
0: characters. of dark humor to those movies. Yeah. 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 Um, and the other director that I would love to see, I don't know if he's done anything lately, uh, I would love to see David Cronenberg do some kind of dark, independent uh, story. You know, I don't know what, uh, maybe, uh, like, a even like a revival or maybe David Fincher do revival, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. Um, I just, I, that, I think that'd be cool.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. It's funny. Cause if we had done this two or three years ago, my answer would have been Joss Whedon like would have been the first person I would have yeah. said as I knocked my pop filter off my microphone and now he's doing the biggest one. So <laughs> it's fun. Uh, all right, this is from Samuel Moon. He says, what is the best superhero team in comics? Avengers, Justice League, Fantastic Four, X-Men, or someone else? Steve, Fan- lay it down. Fantastic Four. Steph, yeah. sorry. Nope, nope, you don't have no, to right. give You don't have to give yeah. a reason for it. Okay, just Fantastic Four. Yeah, yeah. Stephanie.
4: Um, I don't know. The rest of them, I mean, the Fantastic Four are the only ones that really kind of primarily stay the same. The rest of them all kind of switch up. That's true. But, I mean... The core original like X-Men team? Pretty mm-hmm.
1: rad. Mm-hmm. Bob, I think we know your answer.
2: Yeah, Justice Society. <laughs> no, the Fantastic four. But if if I had a second choice, a second I would choice. say Justice Society, yeah.
1: Okay. Uh yeah, I'd probably go Justice League would probably be my first, uh and then uh, X-Men would be my, my second for for that one. Nice. Um uh this is from uh, Carol Cross. It says, if you could write for any publisher, which publisher would it be, and what book? Stephanie.
4: Sorry, wait. One more time, the question?
1: Uh, if you could write for any publisher, who would it be, and what book?
4: Ooh. Um, wow. Okay. I was actually talking about this earlier in time. Mm-hmm. I guess since we're not... Whatever. Anyways. So... <laughs> I don't know. Writing a character that's already established would be really intimidating for me, I think, because there's so many established fans already, and there's expectations of what that book should be. Um, So, I mean, right off the bat, I think I'd be way more comfortable doing something with like image, my own character. But if we're picking another character, um, I don't know. The Dazzler could be fun. (laughs) Just something silly. I wouldn't want anything like super serious to...
1: Right. You know, yeah, that makes sense. I, Absolutely. I want a
4: character that would just, or like, cloak and dagger, or mm-hmm. something that's kind of low key, but you know, it would be fun for me to write and kind of characters I enjoy.
1: Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Mm. Good choice. Very good choice, Bob.
2: I would say image too. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, because, as Stephanie says, writing something with a huge history would get to be I'm going to really foul this up, so mm-hmm. I don't even want to go there. Fatal.
0: Oh wow! Interesting. I would read. I would read Fatal. I read it already, <laughs> but I'd I'd read it that much harder if you wrote it. Bob Reiers Fatal. Oh god! Absolutely. Please do it. Absolutely. <laughs> do it, uh, Steve. What do you got for us? I would love to. Uh, I have to go with Image again. Um, I would love to do an original property. Mm-hmm. I I'm, I don't think we have time for me to get into that now. <laughs> uh, I do have an idea that I would love, 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 love to do. Uh, I would love to do a. I mean, if we're going into characters that are established, I would really love to do a Fantastic Four story, just a quick three issue kind of thing, maybe even just a special. Um, or I had one other one in mind. Oh, the Runaways! Mm-hmm. I would. I would write. I would write the continuation of the Runaways. I think mm-hmm. that'd be a lot of fun. Uh,
1: I would write Spider Man. For Marvel. Ooh, wow. I'm not backing down, guys. <laughs> I'm going to write a comic book story, it's going to be the biggest character <laughs> at their company, and I'm going to write it great. I'm going to find my own thing. I'm going to create something great. That would be Spider-Man, definitely. Because it's it's a character that ranges from serious to silly, and I'd like to be able to have that chance to deal with both avenues hmm. uh, uh, of that stuff. Go big or go home. Exactly, Stephanie. Go big or go home. This is from uh, Logan Rowland says, do you guys think the Wolverine will have a chance at competing with Marvel's phase two movies? So he's talking about the Wolverine that's coming out this year mm-hmm. with Hugh Jackman. What do you think, Bob?
2: I Initially after the first trailer or so, mm-hmm. I wasn't feeling this. Each trailer has made me feel better and better about this. I really think it's gonna be a much more personal movie than the first trailers mm-hmm. seem to show it's a personal journey with with Logan within the movie, his powers changing and so on. I think it's got a chance to be really good. Mm-hmm. And we're just not going to know what those phase two movies are yet. Yeah. And w- how we're going to de- play themselves out. Wolverine is a recognizable character, and Guardians of the Galaxy are not. Mm-hmm. So it's going to depend completely on that movie selling itself to a public who has no idea who they are, who are buying the Marvel brand name. Yeah. Wolverine's going to make a boatload of money. Yeah. <laughs> I-, I can tell you that for sure. So, I- and I think it's going to be pretty good, too.
1: Yeah. Stephanie, what do you think?
4: Um, I don't know. Just coming off of that point about the buttload of money, I barely even know that it's headed to theaters. Like I haven't really seen much promotion for it at all. Which, I mean, I've seen a poster that happened to be up at the Silver Snail, and sometimes someone will tweet about a trailer, and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. that's coming, I guess.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Like there just really hasn't been a lot of backing on, you know, from Marvel. So it doesn't put a lot of faith into the movie for me. Like, they don't have a lot of faith in it. But I know Hugh Jackman's producing this because he has, like, he loves the character and he Mm -hmm. wanted it to be better than the other one. Mm -hmm. And, you know... Yay! I don't know. know. Like, the first Wolverine movie just really didn't do anything for me. It was so silly. Mm
3: -hmm.
4: And I I don't have a lot of faith that this one will be much better. I think Hugh Jackman's a great Wolverine. um, But, I don't know. Like, I have... He's a great character to me, and yet I have no desire to go see this. I,
1: I think, well, I think, first of all, I think we're still, uh, you know, a little, we're a little less than a month away now from the movie. I, the, the kind of mainstream, really, public uh, advertising is not going to ramp up until probably about two weeks before that movie comes out. But I agree with Bob. I saw the trailer uh, before I saw World War Z, and this newest trailer, I, I think, looks a lot better. Uh, I I think the biggest thing that has going against it is the negative feelings about uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine. Mm -hmm. I think all times movies that come out, no matter how good they are, after a bad sequel comes out often underperform. It's the same formula, the opposite, when a really good first movie comes out and the second movie does great, uh, even though it's not very good. So I think it's going to have an issue. Again, you can't discount the, the selling power of that character. Steve, what do you think?
0: Uh, I think it'll do okay. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to do tremendous numbers. I I personally I have very little enthusiasm for the movie. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm kind of in in the same boat with Steph. I uh, I saw the first trail. The the first few trailers did zero for me. uh, Both the international and and regular. I was actually on the plane uh, on a plane, not the plane. A plane last night and saw the newest trailer and it was muted because i was listening to music <laughs> but at least in that trailer without having the audio i did see a number of more comic booky type of beats to it or moments to it that made it look at least a little bit more interesting or that it had a bit more substance than just you know wolverine raging out with his abs and you know, fighting on top of trains, trains yeah. with bad CG, mm-hmm. yeah. and um, I don't know. I, it's standing standing next to the bigger Marvel films. It certainly does not have the uh, the power. Even if you're saying that it's not going to ramp up for until like two weeks before it comes out, I don't even know that, that that those two weeks will amount to the amount of anticipation. That's the thing. I don't feel the anticipation for this. Mm-hmm. You know, when even when Superman was coming out, like we'd been talking about it for a while and it was a it was a big deal. You know, with this, like you had said, I think you put it very well that with the origins film being almost kind of a a joke, Mm -hmm. really, that it kind of hurts the anticipation and enthusiasm for the character having another film because everybody's kind of dubbed it Wolverine goes to Japan. Right. You know, uh, but to be fair, I, I really, really hope just like I I hope with other movies that I don't really, I'm not into them necessarily. I will see it before the podcast sake and things like that. I hope that it is very good and that it impresses me and that it restores my faith in him being able to carry his own film again, because to be honest, I'm not, I'm not in love with the Wolverine character. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of other people are from the X films, Mm -hmm or anything, um, I'm, just, I'm a hard sell when it comes to the character. So I'm probably not the best person to ask. But all that said, I hope that it's very good. And if it is very good, that it bodes well for some of these off-the-main-campaign Marvel films. I mean, you've seen things like Ghost Rider and such that just, they almost don't even stand a chance. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is lumped into that group And it would be nice if one of those movies came shining through and got people to kind of turn their heads away. Not away, but just kind of welcomed in some of these other films that might not have the backing that something like Avengers or Doctor Strange or something like Mm. that does.
1: Yeah. I mean, the thing I'm most excited about for it is really because, and I think Bob mentioned this about the Mm. personal aspect of it, it looks much, much smaller and, and much more focused down on a single character in 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 a enclosed environment mm-hmm. uh self-contained situation and we you don't get a lot of those superhero movies you really don't get any of them uh you know it seems to be there's a constant push to be bigger to be more epic to be crazier to have, you know the, the the most things that can explode and this goes for both companies and all on all sides and all places and to see a character who is dealing with a personal journey to deal with one thing or another that excites me in, in, in a way, mm-hmm. uh, especially that character. And I, I think James Mangold is a very good director. I've liked most of the stuff that he's done. I like Walk the Line a lot. Uh, I like uh, three ten the three ten to humor remake a lot. So I, I am anxious to see what he does with those characters. I didn't realize
0: mm-hmm. that that was the director. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah.
1: So it's cool. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. A, yeah,
0: no, that actually, that makes me feel a little bit better about it because that has definitely a more, um, like an, a bit more of a mature tone yeah. to it. So that's, that's mature. cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. Awesome. So, uh,
1: that's my, my thoughts on that. Stephanie, do you want to, do you have something you want to say?
4: No, no. I was just saying mature.
1: Oh, <laughs> This is why sometimes I skip over Stephanie during the Should podcast. It? Um, no, it a jerk. <laughs> so uh, uh, that is it for this uh, Potpourri uh, Talking Comics podcast. Uh, again, guys, info at talkingcombooks.com, at Talking Comics on Twitter, and facebook.com slash Talking uh, I'm at Bobby Shortle on Twitter. Steve? I am at
0: dead underscore anchorist. Stephanie?
4: And hello,
1: Cookie? And Bob?
4: Bob
2: Breyer at TalkingComicBooks.com.
0: All
1: right, guys. So that is it for the Talking Comics podcast for this week. For Steve. Yo, yo. Bob. Toodles. And Stephanie. Bah. I have been Bobby. Until next time on Talking Comics, to be continued.